Geekish Cast, episode 76. Favorite does not mean best. And we'll be right back after this word. <laughs> it's Sam Jones, Flash Gordon. I'll see you at the Modesto Con, July 9th and 10th at the Modesto Center Plaza. You better be there. Come on. Yeah. Welcome back to Geekish Cast. I'm your host, Jeremy, and I am joined by Don Adams this week. How are you doing there, Don? I'm good. I'm good. I noticed when I looked you up on IMDb, there's another couple famous Don Adams out there. Yeah. Have you have you ever been mistaken for the star of Get Smart, like, you know, hanging around in Hollywood or anything? Fortunately, uh, the older I get, the fewer people make that reference. And I, I mean, I haven't researched it, but I imagine you don't go from being Don Adams 2 to Don Adams 1 on Facebook, no matter what I do. And even then, I suppose I would have to surpass his achievements, which doesn't seem very likely in the time I have left on this earth. Well, you never know. Was it Grandma, Grandma Moses didn't uh, didn't write the Constitution until she was ninety five? Well, there you right? go. Right. So, anyways, you are a film editor, and you've got quite quite the lengthy CV, and it's a lot of it's genre. Well, a lot to all of it is genre work, right? Yeah. The thing that's good about that is is whatever you do in Hollywood, you get paid doing. So you better hope that the first couple things you do are related to what you want to do. And I'm not one of those people who's got some secret movie I want to do about a violin player. Like I was always a genre guy. Just, just so people listening will know my favorite horror film hands down. And it's just due to the age I was when I first saw it Friday, the 13th part two. <laughs> That's interesting. My favorite horror film is phantasm. Yeah. I've seen it over a hundred times. Yeah, and that's and that's kind of how I watch all movies in general. If I like it, I I wear a groove right into the CD. You know? Yes, for sure. Um, that's and that's an old reference for people who've never actually owned a record player. <laughs> I just started but, buying uh, vinyl again. I've got twelve hundred, and I've only been buying for about two years. Oh wow! Well, you know what's so I don't know how true this is because I haven't actually researched it. But friends of mine are telling me that vinyl is outselling CDs. It is is weird in one way, but in another it isn't, since younger people don't buy CDs anymore. Yeah, and the really frightening thing, I can understand there's like fluctuations of physical media. Like I bought some CDs and DVDs the other day, and I don't really buy a lot of that anymore. But I was amazed that CDs are used are like 50 cents, or I bought like Amadeus on DVD for $1.50 the other day. and and But it's a little frightening because you think people have come to rely on, on computers as like, oh, but then it's like, well, one, what if you lose power? Or now that Netflix and all these things are becoming, they want their business model to be original programming, then the question becomes, yes. if you don't own Vertigo, how do you see Vertigo? Well, it, it frightens me for a couple reasons. Um, if you don't actually own the movie, if you don't own a physical copy of it, and there are many I do not, um, if for some reason, whoever holds the records decides you don't own that fucking movie anymore. Yeah. They just take it away. Yeah. And you've got no fallback position. Yeah. Um, you know, I watch a lot of small, small filmmakers and small television programs. And many of them I buy as digital products on Amazon. 
And yeah, if somebody ever decided, hey, you know, by the way, we don't think you actually own this, that's it. I'm, I'm whatever amount of money out. That kind of terrifies me a little bit. And I think it, what scares me even more is like we are people who love stuff. That I mean, we, that's why you have those physical copies because there's movies you love. But you think about younger kids and they're like, kids is fun. You know, they, it, it, sure. they're like, they don't, what scares me musically is they don't, the thing that collecting vinyl does for you and we're all guilty of it in the digital ages. It makes you go back to experiencing like a, a, a record as a piece of work, as like 10 songs that you listen to sequentially. Well, yeah, you're not going to have any great um, prog rock uh, full albums of, you know, a three and a half hour tale that rivals the Wagner ring cycle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're going to have a bunch of standalone 99 to dollar forty nine songs, and that's what you're going to get. Yeah, so that kind of, and even myself, I felt that when I was listening to stuff, and then I got back into listening to vinyl, even I had sort of been conditioned just to get, just to jump around in iTunes, because my iTunes is obviously like, you could play start playing it, it would play for like a year and a half straight, it's so huge, oh, sure. um, yeah. and some of it I'm not even sure where it came from, like sometimes you'll be listening and like the theme for the Flying Nun will come on, and you're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I know, like driving around in my car. I'll I'll just put my phone on. It might be a podcast or something I start with, and then it might be you know like a digital book on or a uh, audio book on whatever, and then right into like Danzig or it just the 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 shifting around is really strange sometimes. Yeah, it's it's funny the multimedia too because there's a there's a metal band I like. There's a band called Neverworld, which is a prog metal band from England, and mm-hmm. I was listening to their to their. I was listening to it on iTunes, and the first song was an instrumental, and it had mixed in with it dialogue from the Twilight Zone episode, um, It's a Good Life, you know, with the, the sending the people to the cornfield, the kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, it's really cool that they did that. And then the next song started, and it kept going, and I realized that YouTube was playing the Twilight Zone while I was listening to the CD. <laughs> and it, they didn't actually. So I contacted the guy and I said, "I, I thought you did because it sing, it sunk up so well." And then I actually made him a copy of it. I sent him a version where I sunk up the mistake I had done. How much we receive? Like, if you think about when we were younger, and I grew up in a town of 600 people in Wisconsin, in the middle of nowhere. Um, do you think if we had had the internet? What would it be like? Would we be so used to, you know, we had to hunt everything down when we were young. You know, we had to go find the Chainsaw Massacre. And you heard about these things for years before you actually found them, because I was right on the cusp of, like, home video. Right. Um, Well, you know what? I actually had a guy on who's a music promoter last week, and we were talking about this. And I always say, you know, I think the Internet's been a great thing because everything's accessible, everything's findable. He goes, yeah. He goes, but... Kids don't get to dig around in bins of old albums anymore. You don't just accidentally come across some awesome fucking Finnish uh, metal band for 25 cents because yeah. you're not looking around. Yeah, you know, you know that. like this example I always cite is when Amoeba opened in Hollywood. Of course, I had been to the other Amoebas. I went A to Z in the, in the UCDs, and I, I just bought a ton of stuff, and it took a long time. It took all day to go A to Z in the, in the UCDs. And I found this CD called Hankenstein, by Angry Johnny and the Killbillies, and the cover was a zombie Hank Williams. So there's like four reasons alone right there to buy that yeah. CD. And it was one of those things where, and it doesn't happen a lot, the artwork and the name of the band and everything actually turned out the band sounded exactly like you would hope they would with those elements in place. 
That's a rare thing. Yes, and I contacted that dude, and then actually I made a documentary about him, and he became one of my best friends, and I've known him for years. And it's um, yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen playing whatever video game my nephew's playing all day, even though he's talking to people, kids from Belgium. Right, right. But they're just talking about, I guess, what's around the next corner. And what was the name of the movie you did? Same thing? The movie was called Dark Side of the Moonshine. And uh, That's awesome. it's a documentary. And unfortunately, we shot it right before cameras went HD. So it's standard def. You know, it's 4.3. So right. it was hard to not that there's a lot of places to go with something like that anyway. Um, but it was hard to uh, sort of find a place. It was just one of those movies I made because I wanted to watch it, which is the best reason to make a movie. You know what I mean? You grow up in a cornfield like that. And there's really not it's sort of a dreamless like farmer town environment. Um the thing I always associated with growing up is I, I felt the moment I felt the most connected to a movie as a kid was when Luke Skywalker looks at the twin sons because, you know, he wants off a of tattooing so bad. As funny as it is for me to say this, I almost cracked a Luke Skywalker joke when you said growing up in a corner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that, that picture, absolutely. I think growing up in Modesto, it came across that same way because um, – at that point, I think there were still only 30,000 people here, not the quarter of a million there is now. I was in Modesto living very briefly. I lived there in 85. My senior year of high school, I lived in Modesto for one year. Okay. In series. And, um, and then I was back a couple times. But, yes, it, there was such a gap between when I went back. It was something like the Taco Bells went all the way to Turlock. Like, it, you know, it, yeah. it, was, it was just just congested. Yes, um, and it hasn't gotten any better. Um, the good news is the traffic goes on for days because everybody's working again. Yeah. But the bad news is the traffic goes on for days because everybody's working again. Yeah, but I saw online there's going to be some sort of fan convention there, right? There is, actually. Um, I'm going to run a promo for it at the beginning here, but uh, ModestoCon um, is one of the local conventions starting. Doug Jones from um, oh, uh, Fantastic Four 2, The Silver Surfer. He also played Abe Sapien in um, the Hellboy movies. And he's in John Dies at the end. He's awesome in that movie. Oh, he is in that. I didn't even think about that. I was just going to say he was in Pan's Labyrinth. John Dies at the end is a great movie, by the way. Yeah, that movie got robbed. I mean, that that's one of those movies along with Feast where I wonder, like, what the world's thinking and why, what other, why other movies are huge. You know, Don, in talking about the Internet, I'm going to set up a question. This is going to kind of drag us into territory. You and I kind of know each other mostly from familial connections, but then you found out I was into Star Trek. Yes. And you gave me a copy of a book that I'm halfway through now, but that's, like, huge about the production of Star Trek. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've read the second one. Um, what are those called? These are the Voyages? So these, these are the Voyages. And they're so amazing because... You think you know all this shit about Star Trek, and it's been years and years of just talking about Star Trek. It's kind of like when the Beatles tell stories, and you're like, we've heard every story ever. George Martin, don't tell that story again. And those books are full of stories that you never heard and and information. Right. He's actually either working on or done with the fourth one at this point, which is about the start of the next generation. Oh, that's interesting. And also, I think because wasn't he around, he'll know a lot about that. Um, Well, because they brought back a lot of the remaining people from the original Star Trek run to work on the first season or two of Star Trek Next Generation. Yeah. They got frozen out. There's a great documentary about that. Um, Chaos on the Bridge, I think, is the name of it. So if you get a chance, check it out. It's on Netflix and Amazon, I think. So you were talking about, like, back in the 70s and 80s, if we had had the Internet. You know, one of the things I always wonder about hmm. 
The Wrath of Khan, which might be one of the greatest science fiction movies on its own, sure. had, had a thing in there where Spock died. And somehow, without an internet, fandom found out about it before production even started. Yeah. How the hell does that happen without the internet? I know. It's amazing. And you think about it, and there's things like after when Spielberg made Close Encounters, and they sort of invented the no one tell anyone anything production, even though the movies go on for like a year and a half. Um, right. Yeah. How do you control that? And now I guess the answer is because of the internet, you don't. There's just like no hope. But um, but that is interesting that, that um, yeah. you know, who, who, yeah, where did that come from? Um, it's just astounding to me that, yeah, that there were leaks like that, and the word got around so quick. I mean, I guess fan publications, maybe, and f- people from one area call on the next, but I just, I'm like, how did word get out about this stuff before the inter- internet? And it's funny, too, because you would think the internet now being this this font of information, and um, but it's funny how, like, urban legends and just the sort of things you heard when you were younger... They're not clarified by the internet. They're they're like you know they're augmented by it. Like they triple now, the things yeah. that people come to believe. And I think it's because people only read the headline and then they start just commenting. You know, they'll just go, oh yeah. And you're like, well, if you read the article, you know, it wasn't you know, like if it, say if it was an urban legend, it would be yeah. It turns out to be a rat, not a dog in the case. You know, but people never <laughs> spend the time to do it and it's really frightening it just becomes sort of this this cycle of opinions just firing of random and then people are arguing with strangers and we're all guilty of it like i i used to do it and then i just one day went what in the hell am i doing letting i mean let's face it facebook is the font of you know how much misery can you bring into your life but then i realized if you selectively pick who you're dealing with on facebook like if you just read the vinyl collector sites it cuts right. cuts down on all of that, not all the way, <laughs> but you know at least you're still, you know. I, I mean, I guess there's there's pros and cons to everything, but I'm oh sure. Well, yeah, because if you limit everything you read, you get into the confirmation bubble. Mm-hmm. You only you only read things that agree with how you feel. Yeah, which is I would say that is a human being's natural basis. We gravitate to people who think like us. Yeah, and it was funny. For instance, last night, I, I'm a great projector of my, you know, myself into situations. So somebody was like, wow, I can't believe, you know, and then you go, oh, yeah, well, I'm not talking about me. But last night, for instance, and this is why I love living in Los Angeles, we went to see uh, Rear Window and Psycho on the big screen, which I've seen many times. But, I mean, it's just nice to have that option, particularly because my nephew, Ethan, had never seen Rear Window. So how many... 10-year-old kids can say the first time they saw Rear Window, even if they're watching it, they saw it on the big screen, you know. It's just incredible. But while we were there, the guy was introducing the movies, and he said his favorite Hitchcock movie is Dial M for Murder. And I was, like, trying to imagine with the list of that being your favorite. You know, it's it's just funny how immediately you go, but you can't tell somebody what their favorite, by definition, they are responsible for telling you what their favorite is. Before Robert Downey, you know, Iron Man was like number eight on the list. Oh, yeah. But now it's just hard to imagine because in the cinematic universe, it's like I just sit there and go, is, is, is Sony Stark going to turn up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I even love how I'm going to, Take it back to music for a second, though. When those first couple movies 
as soon as you hear ACDC, you know yeah. Tony Stark's about to drop into the scene. Yeah, that that, that I, was very cool. Um, yeah. One thing I was going to ask you while we're talking about comic books is I just sure. saw Winter Soldier. Yes. Very recently, and somehow I'm you know like I'm a I'm a I'm not a huge comic book guy. When I was a kid, I read some. But mm-hmm. not to the extent that my friends were like, you go, like, to put it in perspective, when we talk about Star Trek, when I read those books, the one that we were just talking about it, uh, me and my sister went back and watched every episode of Star Trek. And, you know, one thing that taught me that I realized for sure is that Star Trek is my favorite thing ever in the universe. Comic books, I don't know that well, and I have so many friends who do, but I did read Captain America when I was a kid, and I went back and read some of the 70s ones. And in the movie... I thought the Falcon was kind of disappointingly straight late. Like I, you know, remember like the Falcon was, I was like, Captain, you don't know what it's like to be a black man. in the, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think you're going to get a lot of that out of Disney. <laughs> you're right. True. Yeah. You're right. That well, and even look at like, um, well, yeah, I mean, let me, let's stay with that one for a moment. A, I thought the winter soldier might have been the best Marvel movie they've done so far. I could see that. A lot of people said that too. And I, yeah, yeah um, I thought it was fantastic. Um, but you know, for a couple of white guys talking about uh, black characters in the seventies, well, you know, the black Panther was created by Stan Lee in the late sixties. And he was supposed to be like the superhero embodiment of the black Panthers. Yeah. Um, there was there was a much more active, not just in the black community, but in the Latino community and the Native American community, um, a much more active and zeitgeisty equal rights momentum going on there that most of us don't really associate any thought or time to anymore. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right, Don. That's a long way of me saying that. Yeah. There are people that I only experience once in a while in a crossover – Mm-hmm. So you'd go, I know nothing about this master of Kung Fu. <laughs> These people. But then they turn up. And um, to show you my whole perspective, how messed up my view of comics is, the one comic I read every issue of and had every issue of was Rom Space Knight. That is awesome stuff. And a, a publisher just bought the rights to that character and they're bringing him back. I would love to see a Rom movie. Like I love. Well, Rom was great because it was like a sort of, 50s alien invasion throwback which was very right uh but i love that book and um and well rom was was very classic very classic space adventure mm-hmm. um not kind of like the because like after star wars came out all the sci-fi we got besides star trek was really space fantasy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know flash gordon and buck rogers only barely still entered the scene um, so your actual just like space adventure stuff was kind of left to Marvel Comics at the time. You're right. That's interesting. You know, I uh, it's funny too because we were talking about Next Generation, and the the weird thing about me is I am a Star Trek fan who only watches start the original series. You know what? That's not so weird. And just between me and you talking, not my dozens and dozens of listeners getting involved here. Um, I like Star Trek. I love the original series. I really like The Next Generation. I cannot sit through Voyager, Deep Space Nine, or Enterprise for for money or booze. I, I just I cannot <laughs> get into it. And and there was a point a couple years ago, I think it was right when Netflix started carrying Star Trek, the animated series. I don't even know if I'm a Star Trek fan anymore because I only like these two things. 
and everything else I really dislike. It's funny, too, because people are like, I've noticed when I talk to people that there's a lot of people who approach Star Trek is from the perspective of this hope for the future and the ideals and the, and the ending war and all those things. And I'm fine with all of those things, but that is not why I watch Star Trek. I watch Star Trek because of those three swinging dicks and sometimes Scotty, that the, the relationships of those characters is why I watch Star Trek. Star Trek, the original series, aged better than The Next Generation, too. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's dated. But it's not as dated as that 80s color scheme they had on The Next Gen. Well, and the funny yeah. thing about that is you will meet they are of they are of the time they're from. So their favorite mm-hmm. thing, and you could accuse me of that with, like, say, Kiss. You know, like, I'm like, sure. if you weren't around in 78, I can't explain Kiss to you, but you better take my word for it. that It was a big deal. Right. Yeah. And, uh. But I wasn't like that at musically or because, you know, Star Trek was already it was syndicated. It wasn't of our time. You know, I was not no. like I was sitting there watching episodes in 1967. I was in a diaper. A lot of people tend to go with so all type of people say, oh, I like Next Generation. Well, that's when I grew up. But I guess it's also I come from a huge family and I had five older brothers. So I was basically exposed to every genre, every decade of music growing up. And right. so I just went to things. I think there's less of that now. I mean, I, it's very, I love when we take like my nephew to see rear window or I've been showing him twilight zones and he loves them. And I think for a lot of people or their parents are younger. I don't think a kid would just see that and go, it's black and white. I can't watch it. Like, I'll tell you something. I saw vertigo many times, but I saw vertigo in 70 millimeter at the Egyptian one time. And in front of me were like six high school girls, obviously never saw vertigo. I don't know why they went, but there, you know, the end of Vertigo, the nun comes up. I hear voices. There's a shot of the nun. And it's a perfect shot, like jump scare. And those, mm-hmm. all six of those girls screamed. And I went, imagine making a movie that can make six high school girls scream six decades later. That's, well, and, you know, I mean, Hitchcock was a master of the suspense film. He's my favorite director. Well, you know, Psycho still stands out as a great movie. Yeah, so much so that a bunch of shithills tried to remake it twenty years ago, and what they did, what they decided to do was, let's just redo it from beginning to end exactly as it was. You know, it's so funny because I never seen that movie. Because if I did, I would kill someone. You'll get people on the internet, and people will be talking about what they're doing to Batman or what they're doing to these characters, and people will say, "Well, I don't care about that, so I don't mind." You know, I don't mind. But to me, like, okay, they're remaking the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I have no interest in a Rocky Horror Picture Show. Don't care about it. It's nothing to do with me. Nothing I like. I saw it once, maybe. But I'm wise enough to know you're asking for a lot of trouble. You've got, yeah, you're going to upset some of the fans. And some of the trans community are pretty upset at this because they've taken um, Frankenfurter and cast a trans woman in that role. Well, Frankenfurter was not, <laughs> was not a trans person. Frankenfurter was a guy who liked to wear makeup and women's clothing. Yeah. And so some of the, I mean, you're going to piss off a lot of people, I think, with this movie. Or not you. But, yeah. You know, well, the, my concern, would, and that's Tim Curry, right? Yes. Yeah, my concern would not be any of that. It would just be I would not want to be the person playing that role that Tim Curry played. <laughs> right. Or or Anthony Perkins. Or, you know, just, but. Well, yeah, well, I get that because it's like, there are two things I never want to hear a band cover, and that's Queen and Journey, because your vocalist better have some fucking chops. Yeah, and the cover. other thing is, even if they can sing it, they didn't sing it, so what do I care? You know, it's like yeah. it, it's like this idea of, of like musicianship. I'm like, yeah, you could take four guys 
audition them, they would and put them and say this is the Ramones and put T-shirts on them. They'd probably be better musicians, but that's not the Ramones. That's the point. I love those good Marvel movies. I mean, I probably don't need seven a year, but I like the ones I see. And well, Don, Hollywood's never been known to not ride a good horse right into the ground. <laughs> yes, but my problem yeah. is just like. You know, when you go, I went to the Arclight when, like, Iron Man came out, and I'm like, it was on, like, I swear it was on, like, 11 of the screens in the theater. Oh, yeah. And it's like, well, what's not on, what could be on those screens? And, what, and it's almost like people are now conditioned to not want variety. Like, I, you see these satellite radio channels, and I, you know, I, like, tried them out, and I'm like, well, this is, like, the same three rat songs I've heard my whole life. If I get a satellite radio station... If I hear rat, I want it to be a rat song I never heard before. On B-sides or but something, don't, yeah. I don't think people want I don't think they can really – they're not fanatics the way we are. I mean, there are a lot of fanatics. And, of course, I work on movies and I live in Hollywood. So pretty much all of my friends could have this conversation we're having right now mm-hmm. and speak authoritatively, sometimes too authoritatively, on any of these topics. But, you know, when you're in Iowa or you're going in high school – you know, you're the guy that people ask, oh, yeah. who do, you know, about poltergeists. But um, I don't know now. It's just, I mean, they're certainly out there. I, one thing I love is, uh, you know, I went on tour with some bands. And so you meet like metalhead kids and they'll be like 19 and they'll have jackets on. And you'll go, this guy looks and talks exactly like my friends in 1984. Yeah. And they're listening to Motorhead and Black Sabbath. You know, I don't. I, if I had a ton of money, yeah, I would get the 97th reissue of Dark Side of the Moon. But, you know, I've owned that in 32 formats my entire life. You know, right. you could you could make a landfill of, of people's Pink Floyd collections. So, uh, you know, so I try to buy things just, you know, like, oh, this looks interesting and it's three bucks, you know. Um, it's just how much time in, do you have to ingest, you know. All oh, yeah. well, you want one of my favorites to point out is I have owned Bat Out of Hell on 8-Track. I, I, I bet my dad had it on reel-to-reel at one point, but I've had it in my life on 8-Track cassette, album, CD, and digital download. That, Meatloaf was involved in one of the great uh, disasters of my quote-unquote movie career, which is really? I wrote a zombie movie uh, with my buddy Harry, who I've known forever, called Urban Decay which is a hell of a good title for a zombie movie, by the way. It really is. And uh, it got bought. We got paid, like, big-time money for it, like, real money. And the funny thing is you sell a script, and you're like – I remember my friend Dwayne, who's in Pulp Fiction, and he's written a bunch of stuff. Him telling me, you know, when we sold that script, he said, enjoy this because it doesn't happen all the time. And, man, was he right. Because once that happens, you just think, well, for the rest of my life, every couple of months, somebody's going to, you know, give me 40 grand for, you know, uh, yeah. and it doesn't work that way. But that movie got shot, and Meatloaf was like a shock jock DJ in it. And um, mm-hmm. he had, he worked one day and he shot like 17 pages of my dialogue. So it was Meatloaf saying my dialogue, which is great, great to hear. Um, and he was actually on Stern talking about what an ordeal it was to do 17 pages. He's literally talking about our movie. But then everybody sued each other, and it never oh. came out. And it really, we went all the way through almost done with post before it collapsed. So generally things fall apart quicker than that. You don't have an entire zombie movie with, like, Dean Kane in the lead and Meatloaf, and, and no one ever sees it. It does, doesn't exist in the world, you know? 
that would have to be a rarity, I would assume. And you know, and it, and it's really a drag because it sort of stopped our our screenwriting career. They wouldn't let us, you know, direct it, and it and it sort of screwed things up for a while. But then I got through another guy. I got some some more movies to cut, and then I got to be a union editor. And so, I mean, the IRS regards me as an editor. That's why I'll say I'm an editor because it's the thing I've done that's kept the most roofs over my head. I mean, on your IMDb, you definitely list more editing jobs, but you have direction and screenwriter and other things listed there. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean, I would prefer to be doing those things, but, um, well, maybe not most of the time because I see on these, these like three million, like I Fright Night 2, what the directors go through and the way that process is. It's almost impossible to make a, a good movie, a really good movie under those circumstances. So as an editor... You're, you have a lot less stress because it's not on your shoulders. You know, it's on the director's shoulders. Mm-hmm. And nobody's going to not hire me because I cut, you know, Fright Night 2 the way that they would as a director if the movie didn't make money or if, you know. Yeah, no, I'm fo- I follow you absolutely. And yet editing can make or break a movie so easily. Oh, I love doing it, and it's a great job. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, I, get, I, I would be perfectly happy to only edit movies for the rest of my life. But even that is a privilege, not a guarantee. Like, people are always like, you know, like, it's funny that if you talk about your career, if you just meet someone normal from Iowa or something, and they'll go like, well, don't you want to edit Star Wars or whatever? And you go, oh, okay, I've freelanced for 22 years in the movie industry where thousands of people want to do it. But that's not good enough for you know what I mean? Right. It's not good enough for me either, but it's a lot better than the bag factory that I worked in when I was 19, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a plumbing salesman. <laughs> you know, and working in Hollywood would be awesome, but, I mean, I, I make pretty good money selling plumbing, so I'm not going to risk too much to get out. Yeah, these indulgences like health insurance, are they're beyond yeah. the pale of my, uh, my existence. If you could pick five favorite Star Trek episodes from the original series, five, and then count down to your your preferred one, do you have an idea what those would be? I do, I do. And it's not easy, let me tell you, because I love so many. And, and when I rewatch them, I realize, particularly, like, to me, the first season is almost entirely strong. Yes. Um, and it's amazing, like, how many good... Like, Shatner always said, a third of them are great, a third of them are okay, and a third of them are bad, and that's not a bad percentage for TV, and that's very true. Especially 1960s television. Yeah, because the thing is, people are like, yeah, there's a lot of great TV now, but you're like, those shows don't have the schedules, at, you know, and they're not making 24 episodes or whatever they were, you know, whatever they, that. Well, and in the 60s, weren't they making 29 or 30 episodes a season? They were, right? Yeah. A TV series was a physical grind. I mean, I'm sure it still is, but not particularly when you're like, I remember that show Hunter. I remember Fred Dwyer saying, that he, you know, some shows are an ensemble, so you get a break. But when it's you and one woman and you're in, like, every scene, he, you work seven days a week, you know. Right. Um, so you do a couple of seasons of that, even though it's it's great money. But, um, but yeah, so I, I, I try to make a list. And, um, again, favorite and best is always a hard thing. But uh, so are you, we're going to try to go five backwards. Yes, we are. We're going to start start at your fifth and go to one. Okay, you know what I'm going to do to make it interesting? Is sure. I'm just going to eliminate City on the Edge of Forever. I, you know what? I think that is a perfectly fair move. And now that you've said that, I am taking it off my list. Yeah, because it's just two. So I'm going to take the ones, I and I do watch that the most. Let me see. Before we say this, I've always thought recently, because there's mm-hmm. so many shows now, they're not episodic. They're story arcs through the entire season. 
And sometimes I just sit around and I imagine, I dream about Star Trek being a continuing storyline, the original series. Oh, yeah. Like how awesome that would be. Because, like, I love when sometimes they wake Kirk up and he's, like, in bed asleep. Mm-hmm. Like, I always wonder, at 4 o'clock in the morning, who's on the bridge? Like, you could do a show about the replacement crew, but the only reason you couldn't is if anything serious happens, they wake everybody up. But um, Well, you know, um, J. Michael Straczynski actually pitched in the early 2000s a reboot Star Trek TV series that would have been episodic like Babylon 5. Oh, wow. And it was going to be Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and it was going to have a season-by-season season beginning, middle, and end. And it was going to run for a five-year mission. That would have been awesome. For number five, uh, uh, Wolf in the Fold. Really? That's an interesting choice. Well, you know, I'm a horror guy. and Well, that's true. And it's Robert Block. And also, it's a Scotty episode, and there's so few Scotty episodes. And I love them. And, um, oh, very valid point. And, and, and also, there's, like, stabbing and women dancing. and um, There's titillation. Yeah. Although, yes. one thing that makes me laugh about that episode is, at the start, the chick's dancing, and Scotty's applauding. And he pounds on the table, right? And then mm-hmm. they, Kirk goes, no, Scotty, on this planet, we, we, they flash the light to applaud. And he's like, I'm an old pub crawler. You don't have to me, tell me how to applaud. I'm like, why are you pounding on the table? That's not how you applaud. <laughs> well, maybe at some point in the century before Star Trek, <laughs> yes. that's how they applaud. Yes. When, Scott, when Scotland was under the boot of Khan, <laughs> he, outlawed, he outlawed the applauding. But... um. All right, so what what do you got for five? Okay, so for my number five, I go with Enterprise Incident. Oh, wow, that's a cool episode to pick because yeah. I wouldn't even think of it. Um, now, with me, Enterprise Incident, it, I'm kind of like you. Like Star Trek was like when my dick woke up was mirror mirror. You know, there was there was sex, there were fist fights. Yeah, basically, if Kirk couldn't fuck it or punch it, he shot it with his spaceship. And the thing is, that's the thing that Roddenberry's people talk about Roddenberry's contributions, and certainly uh, Gene Kuhn, if you read those books, his contributions mm-hmm. were amazing. But what Roddenberry was was a perverted fucker, and <laughs> that's why Star Trek is like, well, there's so here's many a, hot women on that show. It's Yeah, that's just it. But Star Trek, definitely, just every episode, you're like, hot chick, hot chick. Well, that's oh. funny. As an example, like in, the, in those new Star Treks, which uh, uh, the J.J. Abrams ones, which uh, infuriate, the second one infuriated me, but, and that's a whole other matter. But well, as an example, the Uhura in the new Star Trek movies does not is not she needs to be like two and a half more women to be O'Hara. Like yeah. <laughs> she's too skinny to be O'Hara. You know. Well, yeah, but they're very much cast by the standards of that time. Yes, yes, you know, and those, um, and also the number one contribution, and it's funny because it was a contribution by a gay costume designer, is the fact that in the 23rd century, the women don't wear pants. They do And not. in the next generation, they wear pants. And I'm like, that's reason enough. Well, yeah, William Werthies, that man could design a woman's outfit like nobody's fucking. Yeah. And here's the thing. It's not like modern costume designers where they design them for a fucking hanger. Yeah. He, he put outfits on chicks with some waist and hips and boobs. Yeah, and not only that, some of them were just like tape and cloth. Yes. You know, he was like the MacGyver of, like, yes. how much of a woman could you show? Oh, but so the reason I went with uh, Enterprise Incident is one of my top five. The Romulan commander, for not being a young, beautiful girl, was sexy as hell. That was my first thought when you mentioned that episode. I'm like, oh, yeah, sexy yep. Romulan commander. Yep. Um, 
And, yeah, some of the acting was ham-fisted, but it was also kind of cool that you got, oh, shit, is Kirk crazy? Oh, shit, is Spock a traitor? My God, did Spock just kill him? Just everything about it just ratchets the whole story up. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, the sort of, the, the hyper, you know, like, I, I say this all the time, I, I honestly believe if Jeffrey Hunter had remained captain of the Enterprise, I think we would have heard of Star Trek right now, but I don't think would, there'd be 47 Star Trek movies it would be a flash. And we'd still be talking about it because if you look at Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, lost, how tight-assed those other shows are. And they're like sort of science fiction that's like, you know, that Star Wars blew away entirely by making the ships like used cars. Yep. And, all, and Star Trek did that too in a way, but primarily because of Captain Kirk and William Shatner. You know, first off, the, the, the crazed stylized acting of William Shatner, which later on became sort of an imitation that people do, but that sort of hyper, I mean, without him, half of that stuff wouldn't work. Well, no, you would have had a very, like, I love, and it's actually, of course, my count now, but I, I count the Menagerie and the Cage as one episode. Yeah, I was. it's funny, I was going to put them on my list because I thought we were doing ten, mm -hmm. and um, that, that, that is an amazing, the, the idea of that of that episode is amazing. Like that's one of the strongest Star Trek ideas. Oh, sure. absolutely. But it was very much the forbidden planet. It was forbidden planet. The TV episode. Yes. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, if I may, again, laud yes. Los Angeles for the things we have access to me and my nephew got to see forbidden planet at poolside at the Roosevelt hotel. And Robbie, the robot came walking out. All right, so what do you got for number four, Don? I'm trying to think. I love um, Dagger of the Mind. Oh. I particularly love it because Kirk really gets fucked with in that episode. Like, he almost yeah. cracks. And also, I love all the crazy Star Trek villains. That's one of the best. And I love the whole thing about implanting false memories of the Christmas party. First, I love that right. there's a Christmas party on the Enterprise. <laughs> Oh yeah, you know? and um, and that, that chick's hot too, and I it's a, and I love Simon Van Gelder, the crazy guy at the start, like I and the, the machine. I love that whole thing, and that plus, I love the episodes where they're on a mission and they really sneak around, you know, yeah. like spies. Well, you know, one of the things I like about the original series that gets lost in the later shows. There was a lot of Twilight Zone influence. Absolutely, and Twilight Zone is probably would be right there in like my second favorite show ever. Um, yeah. And both of them hold up, and I think they hold up because of their ideas and their humanity, mm -hmm. um, which always, which we hope are we hope humanity is timeless. I'm not so sure anymore. So, oh yeah, Dagger of the Mind. So, what do you got? My number four is Mirror Mirror. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Mirror Mirror, and honestly, I would rate it higher, except I've seen it so many times that the the weaknesses of it jump out more at me than anything else. But you want to talk about just beautiful women, badass stuff from the beginning. And you get to see our, our regular cast act like a bunch of sad. And it's absolutely the most sexual episode for sure. Yes. Out. Yeah. Beginning to end. It's, it's, it's just murder and sex. I mean, oh, sure. Ohura is so hot that she can turn George to on. Yeah. Well, now <clears throat> to be fair, uh, was gay. Or Takei, I'm sorry, it rhymes, rhymes with toupee. Sulu might have only possibly been gay. Yes, I just love the idea of her transcending. <laughs> like, I have this thing I always say, people say, what's it about? And I'm like, well, all great movies are about filmmaking. <laughs> you know, so I like the idea that Uhura's with a half shirt on is so attractive that it actually distorts the laws of, you know, Star Trek is now just a TV show and we're traveling in the 23rd century. <laughs> 
that's kind of that's like when you talk to a writer and like, well, all writing is really an autobiographical, autobiographical experiment. Yeah, that's a very dangerous position to take, though, because you know I write like serial killer movies, so I don't I don't want to own up too much to that. <laughs> I don't have a basement full of women. I swear to God. Yes. Well, I mean, I, a girl can dream. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, that is Mirror Mirror is great. Plus, Spock has a beard. You know. Well, and that's the other thing is that it's just. Um, as a kid, I used to love when you would get like, well, like the new Star Wars movie came out and you saw what the new Stormtrooper outfit mm-hmm. looked like. I love when they do the sell more toys versions of outfits and uniforms and. Yeah, now they do uh, it. So, like, remember the Boba Fett? The Boba Fett came out before Empire. Yes. And, and everybody, you're like, who's that guy? He's awesome. And actually, you kind of saw the movie and you went, wow, they really didn't use Boba Fett enough, which then became a refrain. Yeah, from then on, like, uh, he's just the greatest costume, and he's all fucked up and banged up, you know. Oh, there was something about it, and I don't know. I, I hold by this to this day, and people have said called bullshit on me and went back and checked. When Vader is in that dining, dining room and everybody else walks in, right? Yeah. And then Boba Fett walks into the room, turn the volume up, because when Boba, t- Boba Fett takes that first step, a spur hits the floor. <laughs> And it's just like a fucking Clint Eastwood character or, you know, one of those old Western bounty hunters walk in that room. And I say for all guys our ages who grew up on those old Westerns, that spur sound, we didn't hear it, but, man, it struck the base of our skull and went right down our spine. Okay, I, I will now have to cite my obscure Star Wars question, which I don't sure. know. I mean, there's an entire universe of fans out there, so has anyone else posited that in Star Wars, and I swear to God... Han Solo, Luke Skywalker says, she's rich. And Han says, how, how rich? You know, I swear to you that Chewbacca says, we need the money. He says, we need the money. I'll have to go back and listen to that. And I tell people to go look because I've thought it my whole life. The first time I saw it as a little kid, I said, Chewbacca just said, we need the money. I'm going to move that one up. And I'm going to say number three is the, this side of paradise, which is an out, is an exterior episode like we were talking about. They're down on a planet. Plus, it's got the right. the great drug thing, and also the the people go through. You know, now we're used to TV. We're used to like Breaking Bad and things where people have character arcs and go through changes. Right. But back then, they didn't get to do that very often. So the changes had to be within the episode, and then they had to go back to being set to zero. But so that's such a fascinating episode because Spock just goes off the rails. McCoy is awesome. He's, like, drinking and threatening the dude. <laughs> <laughs> and um, plus, it's really interesting because it's one of the ideas that are so strong that you go, well, maybe I wouldn't mind being this, like, hippie zombie if I get to live forever on this planet and it's got trees and stuff. Pretty blonde. Like, I get a cool jumpsuit. Yeah, like maybe we shouldn't mess with this plane. Maybe we should, for one time, non-interfere with the non-interference. Well, so my number three. Let me see. Do I, yeah, you know what? I'm still gonna. I'm still gonna order it this way. My number three is Space Seed. Oh yeah. Well, I mean. Um. Now I, I have to say, I was I was still young when Wrath of Khan came out. So by the time I saw Space Seed and understood what it was. It was the Khan episode, you know? Yeah, that's interesting, because when I saw Wrath of Khan, it, it's such a great movie. And it's probably the example of Star Trek you would show to somebody who's never seen Star Trek. Um, that I, I thought to myself, wow, I never would have looked at Spacey, the Harv Bennett, and said, wow, this would make a great movie, until he did it. And I went, oh, yeah. 
<laughs> what a great idea, you know? Um, so what did you have as number two? This is really tough. I mean, not that all of this is tough. And thank God we got we agreed to get rid of Sitting on the Edge of Forever, because, you know, because not, Sitting on the Edge of Forever, you might even cite just as like, and if no one ever experienced television, that would probably be what I would show them. Yeah, not, that's an outstanding episode. Not just really Star is. Trek. And, um, but I'm going to go with, it's tough, but I think I'm going to go with Spectre of the Gun, which I love and adore. One, because it's a Western, obviously. But it's also, like we were talking about, to me, it is the most Twilight Zone-influenced episode. Um, okay, I can see that. I mean, it's a bold, bold choice. Yeah, uh, and I just... I don't know... I mean, I'm always kind of fascinated going back to uh, the the pilot with with things that are, you know, is this taking place or is this not taking place? Mm-hmm. So that episode is basically the entire thing is a dream, even to the extent that Chekhov dies... You know, and there's like the clocks on the walls that there's an old wall. Like, I, I just love all of that. But also, I love the idea that they sort of that idea that they claim Poltergeist was about. It knows what scares you. Right. But it, it, there's a whole nother movie there. Well, there must be because they made it 40 times after that. It's the plot of like 19 movies. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, I just love that idea that the entire thing is because Kirk has an interest in history and wants to be a gunslinger that they end up walking around in the fog in a Western town. That's half there. That's kind of cool. And it is that, you know, um, one of the things I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're actually going to run over as it is, but as a design start, starting point, Star Trek decided to be minimalist from the beginning. And I'm sure it was a way to deal with the budget. Yeah. But like you're talking about, they have a half built town or an episode. I'm sure that nobody wants to talk about the empath literally played it on yeah. a black stage. Um, they're, yeah, and the empath would definitely turn up if we did the worst episode, the five worst episodes. Sure, sure, absolutely. But but they're set dressing. They're just like, fuck it, paint that piece silver, the one next to it red, and then we're going to light it purple, green, and blue from the top to the bottom. And we're done, guys. We're cool. We got a whole set here. It's funny, too, because uh, Twilight Zone was like that even more so, where when they redid Twilight Zone, particularly the last time they did it, um, I was actually offended that they would go to other locations. <laughs> like, there was more than one location. I'm like, right. Zone's not, it's supposed to be in a room. <laughs> right, exactly. This is supposed to be one room, one story. Get it together, guys. Yeah, don't spend more money on the Twilight Zone. I don't Because <laughs> the ideas are like million-dollar ideas, but it's still like, you know, they're standing on a set, you know, right. with a, a phone in the background, you know. Right. But I always, I always, appre- well, I can't say I always. As I have gotten older, I have appreciated the the DIY mentality. Hey, fuck it, guys. We got to roll a duct tape, two greebles, and some gel lights. We got to make this shit work. And and by the way, we got to be done shooting this by noon today. So well, also let's the, jump on. There's a perception among people who don't watch it that it was campy or cheesy, and it's just because they couldn't build the aliens they wanted to build. But there are, I mean, really serious ideas that work in Star Trek. I think if you're not a fan, you associate it with lost in space or things like doctor who that are that are funny and it's 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 easier to be funny cheaper than oh absolutely so um sometimes i think people are missing out on but star trek's always been a weird like as tv series go i could certainly see the average person not it not being their favorite thing in the world you know so what are we at we're at 
I was number two. You're number two. So Specter of the Gun. A bold choice because I don't often hear that from people as being a, a top episode. Yeah, I know that is true. I, I've always I've always loved it too. But I mean, I guess it's because it's such a it's it so breaks the pattern of the normal episode. Yeah, you know. Well, I've got a, you know, my list is very traditional. Yours is, yours, I think, is a little more thought out and a little more artistic than mine. Because um, for my number two, and I said before, I, I grouped these all together, Menagerie 1 and 2 in the cage. Yeah. Uh, I really think to get them all, you should watch all three, but it's really just one episode. Yeah, and it was an amazingly brilliant idea by Gene Roddenberry to, hey, we'll fill two slots because we're behind budget. Yeah. By resurrecting that pilot, because it was a fantastic pilot. Well, yeah, and let me also say, because again, I was young. And then all of a sudden, one day, me and my cousin are talking, and he goes, oh, no, there was a captain on the Enterprise. And I'm a little kid, and he goes, there was a captain on the Enterprise before Kirk. I'm like, what? Yeah. He goes, yeah, Christopher Pike. Goes, no. He goes, yeah, seriously, there's episodes. But the way he made it sound to me was like, there were episodes and episodes way back in the past of Christopher Pike as captain of the Enterprise. Oh, yeah. you know, we're both young. And so for me, like all of a sudden, there's an extra 20 years of Star Trek history that I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> you know, and then you see the episode and you're like, there was another captain and Spock was still there. And they had turtle and the ship, Yeah. And the ship was a different color. Obviously, it was a long time ago. My God, Star Trek has been around forever. <laughs> no. I should say, uh, too, by the way, Jeffrey Hunter was from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And my sister saw him at the state fair one time when he was just back visiting Right around that time, or right before it, and he—I mean—he was in the searchers. He was, you know, he was a movie star. And you won't hear me say this very often. They are both fantastically good-looking men. They totally look like movie stars. Jeffrey Hunter looks like Ray Liotta with a good complexion. <laughs> I just—by the way—I just watched when his career started going off the skids. He had health problems and he was drinking. And of course, he didn't mm-hmm. even live through the through the five-year mission. Right, uh, he probably would have because he he wouldn't have been where he was. But I just watched a spaghetti western within it called "Find a Place to Die" that I never heard of. Really, that's actually a really good spaghetti western, and in it, interestingly, he plays like a a sort of drunk loser gunfighter. Um, and guess what? He's pretty good at that. All right, so okay, Don. So let's. Um, what was your number one favorite from the original series? Okay, uh, some of these I'm not exactly sure about, but I am sure that this is my favorite episode because I watch it the most. Um, it's Return of the Archons. That okay. Um, I am a little shocked by it, but um, so far I'm a little shocked by a lot of your choices. So yeah. Uh, well, I, the other thing is I found in life, uh, musically also, but in most things, my choices always seem to be strange choices. But this one, it's pretty obvious if you know me, because it's like, it's sort of a horror movie, basically. Like there's, it's, it's, I mean, it's definitely probably the scariest Star Trek episode, um, just because of the mob and the torches and the, and the you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I do. I watch it all the time. No, I mean, in light of you and horror films, it actually makes sense because it is, well, it's a zombie movie, or basically. Yeah, and the thing is, I was going to say, which I've said to people since it happened, that no one, I've heard no one mention that basically The Purge, that entire movie series, is just that episode. Yeah, okay. <laughs> which was a good idea, them, like to find it laying around and go, yeah, let's do this. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, wow. And also, I believe... Well, it's one of the episodes where Kirk destroys a computer, as he likes to do. He does that occasionally, yes. Anyone, I'm an editor. I, I know, I perfectly understand the urge to want to destroy a computer. It happens <laughs> to me about four times a day. 
Well, yeah, but back when this was written, editors still worked with, like, knives and magnetic strips. Yes, and the little pedal. Yeah, yeah. so it would have been a little different, but yeah. But he does like to talk those computers to death, doesn't he? Landrew. Oh, he, is he of, or you are not of the body. Uh, I love the, and I read the, in that cool book we were talking about, there's bizarrely, they had this idea that the, the residents of that planet would have their own dialect, but in the episode, only one guy does it, and it's the guy who goes, come from the festival, eh, yeah? And he, he has that bizarre way of speaking. And he's the only guy who does it. And I was wondering if he was, you know, Canadian or from Wisconsin or all that. Yeah, he, he, you're from somewhere up on north of this here Archon planet there, aren't you? Yeah, he's just visiting. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I love that episode. That's okay. Um, I do know, and I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but, um, God, I'm probably going to get the name of the company wrong. I think it's IDW is publishing the Star Trek comics now. And they do classic stuff as well as stuff that goes to the new movie universe. And they actually have remade the Archon episode as an issue or two issues of the comic with the current movie cast redoing things from the episode. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, the, the story's changed. and It's updated. It's done a little different. I believe the Archon turns out to be an old Federation ship from, like, the Enterprise era. But... The, they've actually done some stuff like that. They did the Mirror Mirror and a handful of other episodes. And do they have books that, where Kirk looks like Shatner too? Or they do as well. They 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 publish the traditional Star Trek comics now as well as the updated ones. But they do have, I don't remember what they called it, but uh, Gary is the first officer in one of the uh, one of the issues. Oh my God! You know it's funny too because I. Another thing about fandom or being like the Star Trek and the Star Wars is I was almost never into anything that wasn't on the screen. Like I almost Mm -hmm. never read, you know, I read a couple maybe of both. I've certainly read Splinter of the Mind's Eye, but but I didn't keep doing it. Um, Right. And I understand why people do do it because it's like, well, we don't get new stuff all the time. So you just want to read. Like it is cool that there's books set on the Enterprise and there's Kirk talking to Spock, but for some reason I could just never – get fully into those things. Well, a lot of times, even though some of the authors are great, they don't feel like Star Trek. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, yeah. You know, there'll be, there'll be a dolphin with a, um, a voice projector floating around in an anti-grav bubble of water. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, well, where, where the fuck have you been the last three seasons? Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, okay, so you ready for my number yeah, one? Yeah, I'm interested. I, I, your, right. your list has been, as you said, very traditional. So it's like, yeah, I, I'm interested. Let me let me just do this. I'm going to give you a chance to just pick one and tell me what, what one you might think it would be. I mean, I, I, just based on what I would have said, and, and the further you get down the list, my mind become more traditional. I would say maybe, for me, I'd say Balance of Terror. Bingo. Oh, nice. Fucking nailed oh, it. Oh, my God, I'm excited. Yeah, uh, Balance of Terror is one that, like, if I can't figure out, my wife and I, when we go to bed, we put something on, something we're real familiar with. Sure. You just lull yourself to sleep. Yeah. Balance of Terror is one of those episodes that I love, and I love it so much, I have every moment, every facial expression memorized. I can shut my eyes and continue to play it in my head up until the moment I go to sleep. Yeah, that's. A, I'm so glad I pegged it, because it, it is a great episode, and it's one of the... When Star Trek, Star Trek, as we know, very often gets extremely preachy, mm-hmm. like, but it, that episode is preachy in a really nice way, not like let that be your last battlefield or something like right. this. Uh, 
or the Omega Glory. I don't even know what was going on there. But um, it, just the depiction of war. And also, I remember I was young being very impressed by the idea that two bitter enemies – they're not even good respect each other, respect that. each other, which, of course, is in like everything ever now. But that was yeah. that blew my mind. Like when I was a little kid and the guy says in another life, we might have been friends. I, you know, it's that was one of the moments where Star Trek's high ideals really struck with you know, stuck with me. Instead of, just, you know, usually I'm just, in, oh, look at the green women. They're hot. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Um, no, that that episode does everything so well. Well, first off, it does it does the casting so well. They bring back the Romulan commander as Spock's dad. Yes, um, Mark Leonard was outstanding in that role. But you know what? I would say all the Romulans were too. Yes, um, and and they do something weird too. They they make space Romulans, but they're the stand-ins for the Chinese. Yes, and and also yeah. that episode, given the warfare in it, is you can tell is a huge influence on Rathacon. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, well, absolutely, it almost is. more than Spacey. If you think about well, it, well, think about the uh, the the uh, the fight in the nebula in the Wrath of Khan. Yeah. is the fight between the Bird of Prey and Kirk. Yes, it's 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 cat and mouse. We can't see each other. Um, but again, the the fight wasn't raw power. the The fight was a chess match between two expert players. Yes. It was them. He'd set up a move just to see if the other guy would bite. And then when he does or doesn't, then you know what your next move is. Just so great to watch. And then the added, the, the racism back on the ship. Yeah. And, and and the guy who's a racist, it's not like he didn't have a reason to not be a racist. Yes, and also, but the great thing about it is he's one of those characters where, like, you go, hey, that's Captain Kirk you're talking to. You know what I mean? Exactly. And you're like, wow, it's amazing he let you get this far, you know. Yeah. And that's what, the thing that I loved about Kirk more than pretty much anyone, and certainly in all the other Star Treks and in Commander, but he's just immediately angry. You know, he, he if somebody dies, it pisses him off so much. You know, it's, I want answers. Like, he wants answers from, like, five minutes into every episode. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I found, I think it was said in Chaos on the Bridge, but I don't remember. But Kirk and Pike were Roddenberry in the 60s. You know, that's how he saw himself in the 60s, was if you can't fuck it or punch it, you shoot it. Yeah. Um, you know, but then Picard was how Roddenberry saw himself in the 80s as this very, because by the 1970s, Gene Roddenberry had begun to live his personal mythology. Yeah. By then, you know, Star Trek had gone into syndication and this higher-minded version of the future. That 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 went from being an esoteric background idea to being what Star Trek was about. Yeah. And he began to really, you know, live it. Though I think if you really go and check, he spent a lot of time doing drugs and chasing girls still. I mean, you know, I, I would hope. But, um, yeah. Well, you know, if, if you wanted a good life. <laughs> but, yeah, he... Um... Yeah, I, I, and that's why that's a good episode to pick, and and I, that is really one of the most uh, thematically that episode really works for me. Most of the favorite episodes, I'm they're not they're not my the reason I love them is not is not the grand themes of them, you know. Oh yeah, but that episode I would say is is, is a testament. Like if you're going to show an episode to like a high school class, that'd be a good episode to show. Well, I I think so, and you know, and to be fair, still there's. 
70 other of, uh, episodes of this show I still love. You know, Arena was the first one I fell in love with as a kid. Yeah. Um, but let's go ahead. We got to we got to wrap up. So let's do a real quick. Um, you're a, you're just a little bit older than me, but when I was six or seven years old, Star Trek the motion picture came out, and holy shit, I couldn't have been more excited to see a movie, and I couldn't have been scratched my head more on my way back out of the theater when I was done. Again, I was young. I mean. So, yeah, and I had been riding this wave since Star Wars, where there was just fantastic movie after fantastic. Like everything was going great. Star Trek was my favorite thing, of course. It was syndicated. Yep. I watched, I'd watch it constantly. It would be on all different times. I'd watch it. Sometimes it'd be on at twelve thirty on a Friday night for a week, and then sometimes it'd be on at three thirty in the afternoon every day. In the you know. Yep. Um, but it, fortunately for me, it was almost always on growing up. So, yeah, I was equally jazzed, probably even more jazzed because I had seen all those movies. I was like, Wilson Cousins, I had, you know, all that stuff had happened. And it was getting better and better. I mean, as a, as a, as a geek, leading up to 1982, that was the greatest time to be alive. Some people could probably, would probably say now with the Marvel movies, but, you know, I wouldn't because I'm 97 years old now. Yeah, I, when I saw Star Trek The Motion Picture and I came out, I remember pretending to my brothers that I really liked it because I was so disappointed. And I'm not one of those people. My disappointment has not diminished over time. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen where people are now saying, Oh no, that's the greatest Star Trek movie. And I'm just like, um, you got a lot of explaining to do if you're going to make that statement. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's so, I mean, it's the idea of making, you know, Stanley Kubrick already made the greatest boring science fiction movie of all time. That was his, that was his talent. Every Stanley Kubrick movie is boring and great, mm-hmm. you know, and people argue with me. They're like, no, no. And I'm like, no, they're boring, <laughs> but I love them, but I don't want more. of. Yeah. Star Trek. It was also like the experiment of like pure cinema is what someone's looking, someone looking, what they see, how they react. But after, yeah. you know, two hours of that, and particularly when you're just driving down a, a neon tunnel. Ugh. I mean, he'll, 2001 is slow, but he only goes down the neon tunnel for like, you know, 10 minutes. Right. And, uh, and it's, yeah, so I was, I mean, uh, the one thing it has, and of course it was resurrected, is it has a fantastic score. Well, the music for that is outstanding. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could release that with uh, a storybook. And, you know, whatever you wanted to do. It didn't have to be attached to anything else. It works on its own. And also the the real drag of it was the opening scene uh, with the, the Klingon scene is Klingons. fabulous. And you were still jazzed. You were like, oh, yeah, they got it right. The Klingons are coming in there. You know, and they're, they're too stupid to, to deal with this thing and it blows them up. But uh, after that. Yeah, and all the suits were like gray pants suits, and it's like, wow, what do you what do you think? I mean, there were a lot of movies that are much worse after Star Wars. All right, Don. Well, um, why don't you just for shits and giggles? Do you have a favorite project you worked on that you can recommend to our listeners? I mean, I would say the best movie I've worked on is Fright Night Two. That would be, and and actually, it's it's a good little movie, and it really got a bad rap, and I knew it would. Um, because of the way they did it, just being a, a sort of a, a yet again a retelling of the same right. story. But it it has some really good set pieces and 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 things. And um, so that's the one I'd go with if you want to go big. If you want to go smaller, it would be my movie Jigsaw, which is a slasher movie that I made for Full Moon for thirty seven thousand dollars. 
Cool. Well, in the meantime, guys, you can find us at geekishcast.com on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekishcast. And I tweet from at the geekishcast. Don, thank you again for coming on. Thanks a lot, man. Hail Hydra.